0: An oracle is within my heart concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for in his own eyes he flatters himself too much to detect or hate his sin. The words of his mouth are wicked and deceitful. He has ceased to be wise and to do good. Even on his bed he plots evil. He commits himself to a sinful course and does not reject what is wrong. Your love, O Lord, reaches to the heavens, your faithfulness to the skies. Your righteousness is like the mighty mountains, your justice like the great deep. O Lord, you preserve both man and beast. How priceless is your unfailing love. Both high and low among men find refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from your rivers of delight. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light, we see light. Continue your love to those who know you, your righteousness to the upright in heart. May the foot of the proud not come against me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. See how the evildoers lie fallen, thrown down, not able to rise. The word of the Lord. We are drawing near uh, to the
1: close of our summer series in the book of Psalms called Walking with God in the Meantime, The Christian Life Through the Lens of the Psalms. Next Sunday, Pastor Daggett is going to wrap that series up for us. And my hunch is, if you are familiar with the Psalms, or if you've been uh, able to be around for part of this series this summer, that it's probably become pretty clear that the Christian life is not always easy. Uh, We've seen in these songs and poems in the Old Testament some pretty honest portraits of lives troubled by circumstances and faced with opposition. We've seen the war that uh, rages in our own hearts against sin, and yet we've also seen the hope that comes from trusting God and finding His deliverance, the receiving His forgiveness, and the joy that overflows into praise. But, if you're anything like me, once your eyes are opened to the difficulties of walking with God in a world stained by sin and brokenness, uh, once you begin to realize that suffering and sin So, letting God down, being let down by others, are actually a common part of the Christian life, it's really easy to become secretly pessimistic about the prospect of walking with God in this world. Uh, It's easy to begin dwelling on the worst of yourself or thinking the worst of others or even the worst of God. As the bitter realities of life set in, it's easy to begin... To expect God to give me a stone when I ask for bread, which is the reverse of Jesus' parable in Matthew 7. Uh, Or to be overwhelmed by this fallen world and even driven from God as I'm weighed down with the difficulties and the dirtiness of my own life. Now, Psalm 36 is another one of these Psalms that's very honest about how messed up this world is which could make for a relatively depressing sermon. Uh, It begins, if you take a look at it, by describing the dynamics of rebellion that are common among all humanity and the pervasive threat that poses to us. But it does not stay there, and neither does it allow us to stay there, dwelling on all that is wrong with this world. Instead, What follows is one of the most breathtaking visions of the boundless scope and incomparable value of God's steadfast love, the loyal love of God. The aim of this psalm, and my aim this morning, is that we would have a fresh glimpse of God's loyal love, that we would be caught up and captivated by that love which is greater than our sin and the brokenness in this world and which has been demonstrated for us in God's Son, Jesus Christ. So let's pray and let's look at Psalm 36 together. Lord, we are so grateful to be gathered together to be able to open your word, uh, to be able to sing your praises and to be able to gaze upon your love. And Lord, even as I pray that I realize that Perhaps that's not true for everyone. Perhaps some of us here are quite weighed down by the bitter realities of life, are quite distraught and dislocated from all that seems to be unraveling. And so, God, I pray that every single one of us would have eyes to see you this morning and ears to hear your voice in your word, that your spirit would be at work to open those eyes to see afresh the amazing, steadfast, loyal love of God. Transform us this morning, God, as we sit under your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if there's one thing we can expect to find, no matter where we go in life, it's sinners. This is probably, there's probably, arguably, nothing more common in life, in this earth, than sin. And part of the reason for that is that every single one of us makes up part of that population. You can be guaranteed that any time you meet another human, you've met another sinner. So common is disobedience against God. That's what we mean by the word sin, disobedience to God. So common is that sin that we often use the phrase worldly to identify the rebellious nature of. Uh, It's so common in the world that we will refer to people as worldly or things as worldly to talk about the the rebellious nature of humanity. And Psalm 36 begins by describing the pervasive threat of worldliness in verses 1 through 4. Go ahead and if you don't have your Bibles open, make your way there. It should also be on the screen behind us hopefully in a moment. Now, verse 1 is a little difficult to translate, and some of your English Bibles will put it slightly differently. Uh, I think the NIV captures the idea well here. This is a prophetic oracle in David's heart about the transgression or rebellion or sinfulness of the wicked. And the word translated sinfulness there in the NIV or transgression in the ESV that carries the connotation of rebellion, so disloyalty, high treason against God's crown, if you will, rebellion. This is what life looks like. Verses 1 through 4. This is what life looks like when we turn away from God and follow the ways of the world. This is a portrait of worldliness. Now, what precisely do we mean when we say Worldliness. Uh, David Wells, a scholar up at Gordon-Conwell, says this, Worldliness is that system of values in any given age which has at its center our fallen human perspective, which displaces God and his truth from the world, and which makes sin look normal and righteousness seem strange. Okay? A... A fallen human perspective that makes sin look normal and righteousness seem strange. It's very tempting to say, welcome to New England. But in reality, we have to say, welcome to this world, because this is the common plight of all humanity, all humanity. And verses one through four describe the dynamic. Look first at the fruit of worldliness in verses three through four. We have hurtful and deceptive speech. His words are trouble and deceit. He's tearing down, destroying, taking advantage, deceiving. We have foolish and sinful behavior. He has ceased to act wisely or to do good. His intentions are malicious. He goes to bed thinking about who he's going to take advantage of tomorrow. He plots evil, trouble while on his bed. He gives his allegiance and his energy to a course of life that's only going to destroy him in the end, in a sinful course, a way that is not good. In essence, he does not reject evil. He does not look at evil and say, that's wrong. Instead, he approves of it. He joins in it. He does not reject evil. Now, why? Where does all of this come from? That's the fruit of worldliness. What's the root? It all flows out of verse 2. For in his own eyes, he flatters himself too much to detect or hate his sin. Too much to detect or hate his sin. In a word, arrogance. He flatters himself in his own eyes. He is so proud, so arrogant... That he's unable to see his sin for what it is, and therefore treat it the way it deserves to be treated, with hatred. If, if I love God, I should hate what God hates, and that's sinful behavior. But he can't see it. He loves himself and his way of life too much to even entertain the option that something might be wrong with it. And so he's kind of like a man who, who looks into a mirror and sees a cancerous growth on his face, but then concludes, there must be something wrong with the mirror, because that can't be true of me. He's blinded. He thinks so much of himself, he can't even see clearly what's deadly and dangerous and what's dishonoring to God. Such is what pride does. It fuels all sorts of ungodly behavior. But the essence of worldliness comes in the second half of verse 1. We've seen the fruit of it. We see the root of arrogance there. But the essence, the way we sum it up here in the second half of verse 1, there is no fear of God before his eyes. His eyes are too busy flattering himself to see God for who he is in verse 2. So there's no fear of God before him. Now, what does it mean to fear God? Fearing God is basically the opposite of worldliness. So if worldliness means uh, allowing our own fallen sinful perspectives to give us the grid for evaluating life and choosing how to live, fearing God is treating means first recognizing that He's God and we're not, and second, that He alone has the right to decide what is right and wrong and the authority to punish those who disagree. That's fearing God. It's recognizing God's the one in charge, and I, mo- I owe my allegiance and joyful submission to him. Sometimes, fearing God means dread. It means what we usually mean by the word fear, as is in the case here. For those who are rebelling against God in a high-handed, you know, thumbing their nose at him, continuing in their way of life, they ought to be in dread. They ought to be in dread. He has the power and authority to establish his reign and to punish those who rebel. But fear also and often captures the idea of reverence or awe. So being captivated by the weight and magnitude and awesomeness of God, a, a joyful reverence before God, uh, being, yeah, being captivated by how great, how mighty, how weighty he is. The failure to fear God is the essence of worldliness and rebellion. The failure to fear God is the essence of worldliness and rebellion. This is how the Apostle Paul summed up his description of the universal guilt and sin of all humanity in Romans 3:18. In, in Romans 3:10 through18, Paul cobbles together a list of Old Testament scriptures in order to describe how wicked everyone on earth really is. And his capstone, his summary conclusion of that, is Psalm 36 too. There is no fear of God before his eyes. Paul's point in Romans 3 is that what Psalm 36 says about the rebellious here is true of everyone on this earth. Everyone. All of us have turned our backs on God in one way or another. All of us are guilty before him. Everyone has in some way allowed this world to shape our thoughts, our lives, at the expense of God's holy word, and therefore, we're deserving of God's holy wrath. Again, there's arguably nothing more common in this earth than sin, than disobeying God. That is a dreadful and depressing reality. That is what we have to work with left to ourselves. And it's not pretty. But again, that's not where Psalm 36 leaves us. It shows us how bad it is, how bad it can get. It does not leave us there. Instead, over against the darkness of this fallen world, we're able to see the brilliance of God's steadfast, immeasurable, uncommon love, even for sinners like us. And that's what verses five through nine are going to go on and show us, the unfailing, ever-present, loyal love of God that's so uncommon in the way that we interact with one another, but that is so abundantly available from heaven. Now, we see a lot about God's character on display in verses 5 through 9. There are several attributes being described, but the one that rises to the top over and over again here is God's steadfast love. Now, it's translated in some of our Bibles simply as love or unfailing love. Sometimes it's translated steadfast love, loving kindness, even mercy. We see it at the beginning of verse 5. Your steadfast love, O Lord, reaches to the heavens, It's at the beginning of verse 7. How priceless is your unfailing or steadfast love? And we see it at the beginning of verse 10. Continue in your steadfast love to those who know you. Over against the ugliness of the worldly rebellion, we have the unparalleled beauty of God's loyal love. And the sense of this word is more than just affection. We often... When we talk about love, we're talking about affection. And it's part of that here, but it's more than that. It's It also carries the idea of God's loyalty, this particular word, his covenant loyalty, his affection and commitment to do what is best for his people as expressed in passages like Exodus 34, six through seven. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, And abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Or passages like Isaiah 54.10. For the mountains may depart, and the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. This is God's steadfast, loyal love for his covenant people, the people he has rescued by his grace and with whom he has made a special promise to be their God and for them to be his people. It's a love that will not let us go, as we sang earlier. If you think of a toddler crossing the street with a parent. Now, if that toddler is the one holding the parent's hand, he can let go at any moment and dash off to trouble. But if the parent is the one holding the toddler's hand, he can squirm and struggle all he wants. But that parent will not let go because they love the child, they know what's best for them, and they're committed to bringing them safely to the other side. That is the picture of God's loyal love for us. We're often like that toddler. We're kind of fickle. We love God when we need him and we let go when we think we've got things under control. God's loyal love never lets us go. It's a steadfast love that's always committed to keeping his promises, to doing what is good for us and bringing glory and honor to his name. And verses five through six describe the boundless scope of God's steadfast love, along with other qualities that express His commitment to do what is right in accordance with His covenant, with His promise. Look at the imagery in verses 5 and 6. Notice the reach of God's character, so the majesty, the grandeur of it. His, His loyal love is extending clear up to the heavens, the highest of heights. And his faithfulness is up there in the clouds, the majesty of it. Then you have his righteousness, his commitment to do what is right and to make right what is wrong. It's like the mighty mountains, like the mountains of God. It's massive. And then down in the depths of the ocean, you have God's judgments, his right rules, his correct verdicts. So heavens, mountains, ocean depths, all of creation filled with the worthy character and steadfast love of God. And here's the point. If God's love is so expansive in scope and majestic in grandeur, then it's able to reach down and rescue a lowly human or even an animal. Now look at the end of verse 6. What is that doing here? Oh Lord, you preserve or you save both man and beast. You've got this massive picture of God's love and then this little tag on there talking about saving a man or an animal. That's the tangible expression of God's loyal love. It's not just something to gaze at and be amazed by. It's something to experience when God reaches down into our trouble and not just our earthly trouble, our spiritual trouble to rescue us from our own spiritual bankruptcy. That is the reach of God's loyal love. Now, it's easy to think when we come face to face with our sin, when we realize, wow, I really am messed up. I really do do a lot of things that, that make other people's lives miserable, including God's and my own, and we see how utterly insufficient we are, or when we're caught in a pattern of sin that we just cannot seem to break and we feel like our head is barely above water and we're being dragged down every day, or when we're faced with any sort of trial, whether it's financial or emotional or relational or physical, our body's not working the way they ought to, it's easy to think that we have sunk so low that we are beyond the reach of God's love. And while it's true that sin does separate humans from God. Isaiah 59 talks about our our sins have separated us from him such that he he hides his face from us and he cannot even hear our cries. He, he's a holy God. He can't be near sin. While that's true for human sin, for God's covenant people, for those who recognize that, yes, that's true of me in my sinfulness, and and who have looked in faith to Jesus and said, even though I am messed up and I'm unworthy to come before you, Christ is all my hope. He's lived the life that that I couldn't live. He died the death that cleanses me and brings the forgiveness. For those who know God and have him as their covenant God, there is nothing in this world that can separate them from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. Listen again to Paul in Romans 8. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. He's the one who gives the the not guilty verdict. Who is he that condemns? Who's going to condemn us? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. He's the best defense attorney money can't buy. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So think about your sin. Think about that argument you had this morning trying to get out the door and make it to church on time. Think about the bitterness in your heart toward a parent who broke one too many promises. Think about the weight of the sin that you've kept secret because you can't bear the shame and the implications of letting someone else know. Think about all the trials, all the ways that this world reminds us that we are not yet in heaven. Think about the ungodly effect of this world on your life and now think of Jesus of his sinless life. Think of his cross, the pain, the shame, the sin poured out on him. Think of his resurrection and his victory. Think of his intercession for you at the right hand of God at this very moment. So defending us from the accusers in our lives, from the accusers in our hearts, from Satan himself saying, no, this one's mine. I bought him with my own blood. Think about the steadfast love of God that will not let us go. That is the boundless scope of God's loyal love for his people. It will not let us go. And not only is God's love massive and expansive, it is also incomparably worthy. It's of incomparable value, priceless. And that's what verses 7 to 9 show us. How priceless is your unfailing love. How precious. You cannot quantify the value of God's steadfast love. And that value is described in several ways. First, by the protection of and the security that we find in God's love. He is a shelter for his people. They find refuge in the shadow of his wings. So kind of like the picture of a mother bird protecting her children from the wind and the storm. That's the picture of God's love covering us, protecting us from all that this world throws against us. No other love does this. God's love is an uncommon love. Not the love of a spouse, not the love of a friend or a family member. No other love is able to shelter us from life's storms like this. Because only God is both powerful enough to control the storm and compassionate enough to carry us through it, such that all his purposes are accomplished for our good his glory. So we see the value of God's love in its protection. We also see the priceless value of God's love in terms of his abundant provision. Verse 8, the imagery here is lavish. They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from your river of delights. I don't know what that is, a river of delights, but I want it. That sounds amazing. The picture here, It's just this lavish provision of God. And this portrait takes us both back to creation and also forward to God's new creation. The word translated delights here, river of delights, is the word Eden, the same name given to the garden of God at creation. What a picture of God's abundant provision! everything the man and woman needed for life at their fingertips beautiful and the imagery of feasting on the abundance of God's house is a picture often associated with the great feast of God at the end of the age when Christ returns and evils finally defeated and will celebrate God's victory and our sal- salvation in his glorious presence Listen to Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 9. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The Sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He'll remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day they will say, Surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. No other love can provide for us like this. God's love. No other love was active when creation was made. So no other love knows the deepest needs and desires of our hearts. No other love is able to satisfy those desires, to never let us down, to always keep its promises even to the end of the age. Only the loyal love of God in Jesus. And the reason that God's able To protect and provide for us like this Is that he himself is the source of both life and light Verse 9 For with you is the fountain of life In your light we see light So there is no life apart from God Apart from God animating our souls We'd all be laying here dead There's no life Not just physical, earthly life Spiritual life There is no life apart from God. He is able, in his love, therefore, to give life. And there is no wisdom apart from his wisdom and guidance. There's no light for walking in dark places apart from his light, his revelation, which he has shown graciously on us. And what's remarkable about the way that the value of God's love is described in verses 7 through 9 is that So much of this imagery here is explicitly ascribed to Jesus in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 4.6 For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. John 1.4 in him Jesus was life and that life was the light of men John 6:35 I am the bread of life whoever comes to me shall not hunger whoever believes in me shall never thirst John 4:14 4, the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life so all the imagery of God's abundant lavish provision finds its realization in Jesus. He's the greatest, most beautiful, and costliest expression of God's loyal love for us. It's through sending his eternal son, Jesus, that God made good on his promises. He made good on his covenant promises of life and blessing. And while it's true to say that the value of God's love is priceless... It came at a price. It did come at a price. The life of his only son. The blood of his only son. First John 4.10 says, In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice that bears the weight of God's wrath in our place for our sins. That is the boundless scope and incomparable value of God's loyal love. It's not for people who are good enough. Because there aren't any of those people. But it's not this is this is a, a love of God for sinners. It's not for people who saw they were doing something wrong and then worked really hard to get their life back together and on track and then turned to God. This is for people who have no hope other than the grace of God in Jesus Christ. That's who God's loyal love is for. So as we find ourselves standing between two opposing but equally true realities of life in this meantime, so the pervasive threat of worldliness and the immeasurable hope of God's loyal love, may we not be disheartened. Rather, may the steadfast love of God take pride of place in our hearts. May we see how beautiful it is, how necessary it is, and therefore cry out to God for him to continue treating us according to his loyal love. Or, in other words, may we join the psalmist's prayer in verses 10 through 12. Continue your love to those who know you, your righteousness to the upright in heart. May the foot of the proud not come against me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. See how the evildoers lie fallen, thrown down, not able to rise. So despite the very real threat that this world poses in its arrogant irreverence for God, verse 12 shows us how that worldly program will end in judgment and death picture of corpses strewn across a battlefield. The world, in its rebellion, loses. But the uncommon love of God for His people will never fail. It will never lose. It will never be defeated. It is more abundant and far-reaching than the sin and brokenness of this world. It's more valuable than anything that this world can offer. And it has been it has been made available to us, even disloyal sinners like you and me, through faith in Jesus Christ. For the Lord is good; his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. Let's pray. Lord, grip us with your love. It is so easy to be distracted by our sin, by our trials, to be weighed down. Lord, I feel it. Grip us with your love. Take our eyes off of ourselves and put them on you and your amazing love for us in Christ. Lord, I pray out of your glorious glorious riches that you would strengthen us with power through your spirit in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. And I pray, God, that we, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high And deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge. That we may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.